Brian is an ordained minister in the Uniting Church, like me. He's been at it a little bit longer than I have. And um, you have planted churches in Golden Grove. Yeah, Gold Coast. Gold Coast. Uh, Seaford, Seaford Downs. And now Prospect. Well, I'm not planting this one, Michael. Well, you're in the plant. I'm in the plant. Yeah. You're you're in the you're in the core team as we got yes, going. Yes. So which which one of those is the best? This one, of course. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> all right, that's it. That's all I needed. That's all we needed. Now, t- why so many church plants? I don't know. I just um, you do what you're called to do. I've got a very strong sense of call, and I can't work out now whether everyone has such a strong sense of call or whether it's just me. Like quite specific. So for you, like church plants, that's just a yeah, part of who of, God's made yeah. you to be. I, I think that um, I, I don't know whether everyone – like I just had this sense inside of me from when I was a kid that I should be a pastor and not a farmer, which I didn't, look, didn't like that idea, but it's, that's the way it's turned out to be. But then when we were in our second parish in Loxton, there just came a stronger feeling that I should be starting new churches and working in schools. So – and then I got the opportunity in Golden Grove. So it's something that just developed. So is everyone like that? Has everyone got something developing inside of them? Michael, anybody? I, I mean, I do, but I'm yeah. planning churches too, so I just might be the same kind yeah, of crazy so as you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's just it's just something that I knew was, was the right thing to do and felt, you know, you think that you've yeah. got to have a go at it sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Yeah. What is it why, – why does the church, like the, the – whole church need mm-hmm. church plants, do you think? Well, you have to start churches somehow or other. Um, but I mean, oh, okay, Adelaide is the city of churches. Yes. You can't go literally a day's horse and buggy drive without seeing a Methodist oh, church, okay. yeah, yeah. which is, of course, how we measure oh, everything in 2018. In, term, in terms of what I've done, I've just done it in, in growth suburbs, so it's sort of been that rather than plant a church in another area where there's already a lot of churches well it's, it's true but like let's take Seaford Downs for example it's not oh, like residents true. couldn't yeah, drive yeah. another five minutes and go to a church yeah Donald you're right so what's um, <laughs> um, Donald all right I'm, I'm gonna let Don, that slide Donald Duck um, okay Donald Duck sure no one can remember Donald Duck except for me <laughs> no no that's I'm glad it's that Donald yeah that's that all right. was that was different yeah <laughs> Uh, in, in that case, it's basically trying to, I, I think the aim basically was to put an evangelical or an evangelistic church in an area, and that was probably the main goal. Um, and that came out of um, Aberfoyle Seeds Church, and they invited me to come back from Queensland to start it. Where did you plant that church? In the Seabird Hotel. So why did you plant a church in a pub? It was the only place we could find that it'd have us. Uh, they gave us the, the, the Seaford Hotel, all the conference areas upstairs for eight years without it costing us a cent, apart from walking up and down the cent with steps every week with the sound gear, which is a bit of an effort. Mm. Yeah, yeah, Which is. is very good of them. It was very good. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm. Uh, are there any other stories of provision like that, that as, as you've gone out and stepped no. out of faith? Because it's a pretty big faith step, I think, is the other thing. No. Like, it's, it, it probably wasn't for me as it is for you because... Um, well, it hasn't been in some ways, I suppose, but the Uniting Church has been pretty generous with me, about 450000 bucks in three church plants, so that's more than nothing, isn't it, Mike? You could, you could handle 450000 Yeah. You couldn't you? So yeah. they've been very good. good. Sorry, could you repeat uh, that again for the podcast? Uh, about how much? The, the other thing that happened, which, which is worth repeating, I think, is we started the first one up in Golden Grove, and, and it was small, like all church plants are, and then because of the way the Uniting Church worked, when they called me to be their pastor, they... 
they did that. The, the actual core team or the folk that were there did it without my me being there because I wasn't their pastor even though officially because of the United Church. But I didn't know that what they did was that a lot of families double tithed. Now, I didn't find that out until about five years ago. It sort of blows your socks off when you think about it, that you've got folk that feel strongly enough about you as a coming to church plant that they'll give that amount of money just to start the church up. It's Some of them that I was rude to, I wish they hadn't been rude to after I heard that. So it was brilliant. I mean, you know what I mean? I should have been a lot nicer. I mean, that that's something else. And, I, and maybe that's why now what's journey has worked relatively well. It's always been had a lot of evangelism going on there with kids and oldies and maybe it comes out of the generosity of the folk that started it, you know, that heart for God. I mean, uh, I look at it, the, so the two in Adelaide that you've planted are both still going and still healthy, which yes. is great. You, uh, G- with Journey down on North East Road now and um, yeah, they, they, and, yes. and uh, Connections. Young Will, you know, yep. With our good mate Will Hall is out at um, Norlunga Downs Primary School. Yeah, they've gone into a primary school now. Yep. Mm. What is it that... What is it that church plants need that makes them different from a regular church plant? I think you've got to think um, more community and less church. Does that make sense? Yeah. What does, that, you, what does that mean? Well, it means you think of the community and, and gathering the people in the community into a position where they want to hear or they have faith. So it's not a building. It's not sort of trying to start a, a structure. It's just trying to get people together who really love Christ and then see where it goes. Uh, for me personally, I always aim at school. I've always aimed at schools and universities because it's just get, probably an area where I feel I'm a bit more gifted in bringing faith to those people, mm. probably. What What are some of the success stories in those? Oh, quite a lot. I mean, I heard one the other day because I was chaplain in Padere Christian College and uh, I used to walk in and out of there uh, on the Gold Coast Pacific Pines High School gave me a name badge after a couple of weeks with my blue card so that they knew I wasn't a criminal. Um, that was supposed to be funny. Uh, so oh, I just assumed they didn't laughing. check that hard. <laughs> uh, I, I, and in, in both cases, the, the schools, like the three school campus out there, are not so much police and the Catholic school. The other two, there are a whole lot of converts. So, and then on the, Gold, on the Pacific Pines, there are a whole lot of really rough kids that became Christians. I could always find them because they were always in the timeout room, so that was easy to find. I could find my youth group easy, just go to the timeout room at lunchtime, there they were. Um, but I heard the other day, for instance, of a, a lass I spent a fair bit of time with who would be 40-ish now, and it was through another person who was in the school. He went to buy this car, and it happened to be her car, like she was selling it. And she was pretty wild at school, right? She was living on the edge or slightly over the edge. Um, and I used to talk to her a lot about things. And, and, and so this guy, when he bought the car, went to buy the car. He said, well, what are you now? And she says, I'm a psychologist. And he nearly dropped over dead because he thought that's not the way she was heading at school. And he said, why? And, and she said, because um, Brant used to always say to me, there's something inside of me that if I don't ever do it, it'll never it will never get done, so I'll become a psychologist. That's a good story, isn't it? It's a great story. Yeah. It's a great story. Yeah. Why, why, why do you feel like it's the rough kids? Like I, feel, I feel like that is something about oh. you. Yeah, there's the, the rough kids that just get drawn in. And don't just joke and say, because I was a rough kid, and you were, I guess. But what, there's, there's something about the rough kids, I think. 
What what is it about the rough kids that has has helped you? I don't know. You equip them and build them. Yeah, you were pretty rough, weren't you? Really? So, <laughs> yeah, private school um, education. No yeah. child. I was, I was a nightmare. I don't. I don't know. Um, I think it's it's more about uh, some of those kids. If you come at them from the right angle, they're quite open. Yeah. Because they're a bit more vulnerable. Does that make sense? So you you talk to the ones that are more. I go for the ones that are more open, and often that's the vulnerable ones. Not always. I mean, I can actually talk to people that are. A, bit more like you were, Michael. Yeah, no, no, you can, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And um, for those who don't know, I, I came to Faith at Journey. I, I gave my life to Jesus at the church that Brant was leading at the time. Yeah, we did spend a fairly rough night at Fuzz Kiddos once in Sydney. Or, we did, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, we were at Hillsong and we I go to this guy's place. His name's Fuzz Kiddo. He's changed his name by Deepol to Fuzz. And we always have a sort of a nosh-up night with him. It goes on and on and on, and he's, he goes all around the world. And we had a number of kids there, and often out of those sort of crazy situations that get a bit out of hand, and there's a lot of talking, uh, inspiration comes as well. So, you know, yeah. maybe that's the way I've worked a fair bit is off of yeah. being sort of semi-mad. Well, I, th- I think, I mean, there's something to that, yeah. There's, there's ex- pretty extravagant hospitality on nights like that. Like mm. You just kind of go for it. Mm. Why, why always evangelism, though? Like you were talking about evangelistic... Oh aims before how can how can you nobody who's a thinks jesus is brilliant not look at a person and want to bring him to that faith how do we do that though like give us give us two one to two tips because i think a lot of people find that quite hard oh i find it hard too i want to mention in a minute it'll save me save you five minutes out of my sermon now that'll be good for you um <laughs> i think the thing is to constantly look and just see who's responding around you you know um, and I, I and I can be quite provocative just by I don't know whatever. And part of that is is to, in some cases, people just tell you to get lost. But by being a bit more into it, sometimes people will open up more. I think I'm probably relatively aware of um, where people are at as far as whether they're open to hear about Jesus. I do think I honestly think Jesus is brilliant. You know, I think he is just a amazing person, and obviously he's the redeemer of the world. So it puts him a bit above all the rest of us, Michael. That's for sure. But I do. I think he's great, and he talks to me. He really does, in a weird way. No, it's, that's brilliant, and uh, I'm looking forward. Not a to weird him. way, actually. Quite. He's very sensible. If he talks to you, you talk to you. You use your Christian name, and he'll talk to you quietly. That's how he talks to you. Well, to me anyway. That's helpful. Mm. Don't okay. be scared. No, no, that's that's really good. That's really good. Um, give us one more good story from church planning. You knew I was going to get you up here for stories. Mm. You got skate effects stories. If you oh, want. yeah, I they're, suppose they're so, pretty good ones. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, <laughs> one of the pastors we had was a guy called Andy Dunt. Some of you know Andy. Um, Luke Skywalker knows Andy, or Luke, whatever his other name is, who comes here. Um, <laughs> He, he knows Andy. Andy just about won that thing in Sydney. What's it called? The uh, Australian Ninja Warrior. He yeah. finished Australian Ninja Warrior, but he was a bit slow, bit slow at the end in getting to the end of it. Like he, he actually finished the course, but his time was just slightly out. Well, he came to me when he was about 19, and he was a young Christian fellow, and he said, I want to start a skate church. So 
I said, fine, I don't know whether I ever asked the church council for, for permission because they always reckon I thought it was easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Once you started something, it's hard to stop it. <laughs> that used to make the, the, the more legalistic types tear their hair out, but oh, bad luck, I'm still alive, so are they. <laughs> so he, I said, all right, we'll, we'll pay you two days a week to start this skate church. So for a year, he just skated in the gutters up around the the three school campuses and through, you know, along Hancock Road and then down over the side, um, para hills with kids anywhere who were into skating. And then he started this skate church that eventually was in a skate park, indoor skate park somewhere down over the edge here. And some nights they had over 100 kids there and a, a number of those became Christians. Mm. They also had the ambulance there fairly regularly because they used to fight and hit each other with skateboards and that can cause... Fairly large cuts and heads and things like that. So, uh, and all I said, Andy, was, Andy, I, I want, you're only young, I want to do two things. I'll, one, I'll let you go on your own, but once a month I want to meet you, you with your mum and dad because you're so young and I've burned out other youth workers, I don't want to burn you out. So I want to sit down with you and your mum and dad and say, are you okay? And they can say yes or no because you're living with them still and we'll pray for you, but that was good. Yeah. It's unreal. Mm. I mean, Brant's, Brant's way too um, modest to talk about it. He's got incredible gifts of evangelism and pastoral care and encouragement, and um, he's just he's just a huge blessing. So, first of all, we just love having you at the church. Love having you at Encounter. Love having you as uh, an acute encouragement and blessing into mine and Jenny's life. Love having you on the board. Love having the, the way you just start conversations with people. Um, so, we're just I'm just going to pray for you, and uh, then we're going to get back and worship, and we'll hear from you a bit later on. Okay, Mike. God, we just thank you so much for the life and ministry of Brant. We want to thank you that literally thousands of people have had their destinies changed, have had their lives turned from hell to heaven because of the the faithfulness and the encouragement and the hand of Brant in just stepping out and doing what you said he should do. And so we thank you so much for that. And I just pray in Jesus' name that you would give him more fruitful ministry for the next season, that it's not finished, but actually way more is still to come that uh, we have way more still in store for Brian. Lord, let your spirit continue to minister to him and encourage him. Bless him and his family and his grandkids in Jesus' name and continue to find ways for him to use those incredible gifts to make a difference in the kingdom of God. And thank you for the blessing he is as being part of this church in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, mate. Hallelujah, Lord. God, would you help us to build our life upon your love? To build our life upon you, Jesus, to trust in you in good times and in bad. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you take a seat? And Jared Hunter is going to bring us the word of God tonight. Hello, everybody. Tonight we're going to be reading from Acts 14, verses 8 to 23. Hopefully it'll be up behind me very soon and in the same translation that I've got. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. 
At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer, to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only humans like you. We bring you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go on their way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came up from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got, got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derb. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. They then returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Don't you reckon Jared looks like Ned Kelly? Thanks, Ned. Huh? I've knocked this thing into bits now. Um, I've got some oil up here. Um, the opportunity afterwards, I think, may be, thanks, Michael, um, or will be, if you would like to be prayed for, for one of two things here. One is, if you, I keep saying this, I know, if there's something inside of you that you think still needs to come out and you'd like to be prayed for, anointing just as a sign of the Spirit, we'll, we'll pray for you. I'd like to pray for you. Um, and the other thing is if there's been something that sort of resonates around and around and around and around inside of you, which you can't get rid of, well, then maybe we could pray for you too that the Spirit would allow that to come out. Is that fair enough? It's a two, two areas. So other than that, I'm just going to preach a, a normal uh, Brant Jones sort of a message from that passage. Uh, and the aim of looking at this is to just show how we can influence a society for, with Jesus. This is the, in this reading that Jared read out there. It's the first time and it's the only time actually that a, a, an unrehearsed message is actually preached in the early church to a non-Jewish and non-proselyte audience, right? So it's quite a chaotic sort of a situation in some ways there and I think it's a bit like what would happen uh, in Adelaide these days if you actually got into the same situation as what they found themselves in as well. Right, it's the first time so that they that to, that anyone, it was in this case it's Paul and Barnabas, uh, present a message to polytheists, to um, pluralists, and to pagans. That's you can think about those terms. You're all university students or whatever, and you work that out for yourself what that means. 
It seems like it's a disorganised idea in Acts chapter 17 when, when Paul goes on to Athens where he gets these Athenians who are philosophers. He comes out with a very reasoned understanding to believe in Christ. Whereas here it just seems to be quite spontaneous. Right, and I think we can learn uh, a few things about how we talk to our society, which I think is fairly pluralistic, don't you think? Okay. And there are four things I think you can get out of what Paul and Barnabas did there. Number one, you need to love the needy. That's number one. Number two, identify the idols. Number three, ensure the heart, sorry, endure the hardness. I think that's a big one for our society. And then fourthly, fulfill the longings. Love the needy. Uh, they, Paul here doesn't actually say he's preaching the gospel out somewhere in the open. And I, I, and I wonder whether Paul and Barnabas weren't in a coffee shop somewhere in Prospect uh, talking to some new converts that they'd made in this particular city. Uh, and this, this guy who's healed is just listening and Paul recognises that he's actually really, really listening. You know what I mean? And I think that's one thing about uh, preaching to Judeans and being in a, in a city like Adelaide or in Judea, which for us is a bit like South Australia, I guess, um, what, we have, what I think we can do is learn to actually watch the people around us so that we can actually see if somebody's actually moving towards the faith. And so it says there that uh, Paul understands that this man's being absorbed by what he's saying. He's actually get, gathering faith. And so he gets healed. Um, and it's much the same as what Jesus did. Uh, Jesus often used to say, he'd look at someone and say, and it says in the Bible, seeing that person's faith, you know what I mean? So do our best in terms of being people working in Judea and our situation in Adelaide to try and see people's faith. And then secondly, as Paul does here, and as happens elsewhere with Jesus, we're, like, we're the master's apprentices, you actually um, watch for healings and opportunities like that. You love the needy. So Paul and Barnabas love this guy for what he was. They meet his needs, which is a healing in this case, and those two always go together. It'll go together here in Prospect as well. Uh, it doesn't always have to be miraculous. You think of Mother Teresa. I don't know that she, she may have seen miracles. I don't know, but a lot of people came to faith because she loved the needy. Okay, So don't sort of get tangled up in the idea was if I ever see a healing in a coffee shop, well, then I'll preach the gospel. Um, it's more than that, but just keep, in, keep that in mind. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we need to identify the old idols. Now, for Paul and Barnabas, they didn't have too much trouble identifying the oldies, idols. Hermes, the spokesman for the gods, that was Paul, they, that's because he was a speaker. And Zeus became Barnabas because he probably, he was the, the, the actual senior god in the, in the, in the system of their, of their godheads. Um, they just naturally thought, well, these two guys were there. And there's a good reason why they thought that, actually, which we'll talk about a bit later on. So um, identifying the idols was fairly easy there, okay? Um, and so Paul says there, he tells them, telling, turning, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and sea and everything in it. In the past he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So Paul and Barnabas identifies the idols, points them away from that to something or other else. 
Notice here again, as I was saying before, Paul's presentation was unbelievably different from before, where if he was in a synagogue, he'd talk about the, the Old Testament law, about guilt, about uh, forgiveness and that sort of thing. Here he just goes for what you'd call a, a natural revelation, the revelation which is out there for all people to see. And that is that God is, if God is there, he gives us rain, he gives us love, he gives us relationships, he gives us good things. And that's the way Paul talked to them in this situation about faith. But he also says to them that they're enslaved by idols, uh, which actually means worthless things, worthless things. It sounds a bit confronting and Paul wasn't too afraid of being confronting at times. He's actually saying there that these are empty, deceptive, ineffective things. He's saying basically that these things that they're worshipping make promises to them but they don't deliver. They make promises, but they don't deliver. And back then you had things like, if you love wine, who would be your God back there? Does anyone know? Bacchus, all right. Somebody come up too quick with that one. Um, <laughs> if, if you love money, you would go in this particular city, which is near the sea, you would go for one of the two commerce gods. You know what I mean? So that you actually went for the thing that actually uh, was the one that sort of would work for you the best, except they didn't work for you anyway. So you'd be enslaved by worthless things, basically. That's what he's saying there. Paul's saying he, these things, are in the long run, they just lead you nowhere. Uh, but God is brilliant. He's created heaven and earth. He's given you life. He's given you kids. He's given you employment. He's given you rain. He's given you family. So Paul's pointing to a different God altogether. And Paul's also pointing out that everybody lives for something or is sacrificing for something and saying, this is my meaning in life. And the same question's on for here in Adelaide. What's our master? What's someone's master in Adelaide? And you know, if you, you know, for some young people anyway, it's uh, finding someone to love. Now, if that is your master, you might find someone to love, but who becomes your master out of that? The person that you're loving, because what that person wants is what you're going to do. You see what I mean? Uh, you've got to watch out for for what you actually desire because it will become your master. And Paul was saying here there's only one true master and he's the one who loves you and gives you all these good things. We can go on and, and say then from a belief point of view that Jesus, the son of the true father, is the only one who can actually liberate you forever and forever. We get so much peace from him, we get satisfaction and Paul says he's already filled your hearts with joy even before you know him. Think what he'll do if you actually come to know him through his son. At this stage in the, in the conversation uh, or in the, in the speaking, uh, events get interrupted whenever, where, before Paul gets any further with what he was going to say. So Paul starts where people are at. That's the point I want to make. We need to start where people are at. Now, if you said to somebody in Adelaide, like down in Jade's coffee shop, for instance, if you said to someone down there, um, you ought to obey the Ten, obey the Ten Commandments, um, what would people say back to you? Don't be rude, but... <laughs> they'd say something like, everybody has to decide these sort of things for yourself. This is insulting for you to tell me what I should believe and what I should do. Don't you come at me with your moral standards. So they're into, into relativism or, or moralism. Does that make sense? But if you say to somebody down in the coffee shop, look, I tell you what, everyone's living for something and whatever you're living for is mastering you. 
Some of these masters will tire you out if it's, or if it's some special position you want and you can't get it, then you'll get angry and frustrated. You're living for a master slave driver, either to find love or to find meaning in life outside of something which comes from beyond you. And then you say something like, but I know Jesus and fair dinkum, he is so satisfying, you know. On top of all this, he forgives me every time I do something wrong. Seriously, he does. And what will they say? They'll say, fall on their knees? No, probably not. But they'll say, oh, at least that's interesting. You know what I mean? So you're going from actually trying to say something which lies outside their philosophy of life for taking something which is inside their philosophy of life and expanding it a bit further using who Jesus is and what Jesus can do for them. So that's what I'm saying is in that point. Thirdly, you need to endure hardness, the hardness of the situation. After Paul had gone away from, from the city, he comes back encouraging new believers around the countryside and he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I want to say clearly it's not salvation that you get by going through hardships. You don't get brownie points through going through hardships. You get salvation by faith, by the grace of God through your faith. That's no doubt about that. Jesus just gives it to you. But suffering, generally speaking, if you maintain faith when you're suffering, going through suffering, you will develop a lot faster than if you're just rowing along going downstream. You know what I mean? If you're rowing upstream, your muscles are getting stronger and you're going into it, you'll just develop more of a relationship with Jesus because you feel that that's necessary. He gives you a deeper sense of humility because of, and peace as you go through suffering. You learn to listen better. Uh, you get more joy out of your relationship with him. You find that worship is actually more meaningful because you're serious about it. You have a better understanding of the direction for your life as well. Now, back in about the 6th century, there's a couple of um, saints, a guy called Cyprian, St. Cyprian, uh, Cyprian and St. Ambrose, who said stuff like this to the polytheists. That is the multi-God type people. Uh, and they would shout, and they actually shouted it, and they were very proud of the fact. They'd say, look at us Christians, we suffer and die well. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but that's what they used to say. And they used to develop that in terms of their relationships with their society. They developed that understanding in their own churches of the fact that, that suffering actually developed things and allowed the kingdom of God to come. And what they did do, which shocked the pagan onlookers were, was when a city actually was struck down by uh, uh, some disease or other, all the, the polytheists and pagans would, who could would just shoot out of the city, but the, the Christians would stay on and help those people who were sick. They would help the poor. And it happened over and over and over again in that time until the time when Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, came along one of the great uh, saints of that particular time says, everybody knows in the Roman Empire that Christianity is right because look, look at what we do. We understand suffering, we understand eternity, we're not that worried about dying and we're here to help people and to love people. And it became so strong in the church that the church became a thing that everyone, under well, a lot of people at that time understood was the appropriate belief to have because of how they suffered and how they develop their relationship with God under suffering. So I think we need to learn how to suffer well in our society. I think Western society basically you probably could say would think something like this, to be happy is to live the life that makes you happy. To, to be happy makes you live the life to, is to live the life that makes you happy. 
And the problem with suffering under that is that suffering then becomes something which is seen as bad or a disruption. So if you're living to actually find happiness, you can't suffer well, you know what I mean? But if you're living to actually bring the kingdom of God into people's lives, you can suffer confidently and you can suffer well. That's my third point. My fourth point is to fulfil the longings. Now, I'll just read out verse 11 there again and it goes like this. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language. Lyconian was a local language that they were still using. They weren't using Latin or Greek. They, they shouted out, The gods have come down to us in human form, and Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Now, mainly their understanding of, of what they were saying about these two men being uh, gods was wrong, but there was a certain amount of truth in it, and they understood that. The tradition was that these two gods had come down to Lyconium about 50 years before, right? Uh, and they came in human form and they walked around and they tried to find people who would befriend them. They couldn't find anyone, right, at all. Uh, and in the end, this elderly couple actually looked after them. And so when they left, they nuked everybody and put the elderly couple up on a pedestal. You know what I mean? So these guys had a tradition of God's coming down, right? And they weren't going to try and make the same mistake again, you know. Fair enough too with after what happened last time in their tradition. And so what Paul was picking up on is, is, is that actually he, he takes what they have, the longings of their hearts to actually worship these gods in a way that's appropriate now, and, and then he turns it around to say, no, you're heading in the wrong direction, but your longings are good for God. Is that fair enough? But who's heard of uh, J.R. Tolkien? You all have heard of J.R. Lord of the Rings, that guy, okay? Um, back, he was an Oxford um, don, and uh, back in his day when he wrote Lord of the Rings and that those sorts of stories, and C.S. Lewis was writing um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and those stories as well, two Christian men. Um, Tolkien gave this effort, this essay, uh, on on, and the topic was on on fairy stories, on fairy stories, right? Because a lot of people who were very humanistic and very uh, scientifically based without faith were saying during that time that you could have nothing in life apart from what could be scientifically proven or what you could touch or feel. You know what I mean? And so Tolkien wrote this essay uh, as, and, and he presented it uh, to the people in, in England at the time uh, for a particular purpose to try and get them to think bigger than just science and, and what you could see and feel. And he, and, and, and he says some things like, and it's the same in, in Adelaide today and in, in South Australia and Judea today, people are st still love this sort of stuff, all right? So Tolkien said that there are four human longings that you can see when you look at these sorts of stories, fantasy stories like Harry Potter. I've got a granddaughter, I reckon, has read Harry Potter seven, each book seven times and she's in year four. Or superheroes are in a bit now, aren't they? Superheroes. Uh, uh, fantasy stories, other ones like that as well. Tolkien says that in all of these things, it just points to the fact that every human being longs for four things which they can't find. So they'll try and find it in a fantasy story. Fantasy story. And he says these things are desire to escape time and death. A desire. All human beings have a desire to escape time and death. Secondly, speaking or communicating with non-human beings is something that human beings desire. Thirdly, when you get uh, a love that heals everything, you never lose it. That's what we all want, I think. That's true as well. 
like to have an eternal love, a thing that you can keep forever. And you also, he says, all human beings long to see a complete triumph over evil. That's the four things he mentions. Now, because our society loves this sort of fantasy story, I think we need to keep in mind as believers that we've got the answer to what they're reading. See, Christians know that there is a strong memory trace of ultimate reality which we can't find in this world. Originally, Christians will say, originally we were talking to non-human beings. We had love without parting before the garden. There was no evil there to smash everything. And we know this is total reality. And people can't, human beings can't stop wanting this. So this is a thing that we can develop and allow to come through into people's lives. The seculars will say, well, you're just barking up the wrong tree. It won't happen. But guess what? Jesus has come down in human form from up there, from out there, all right? And he really breaks the barriers between us and ultimate reality. He's busted it. He's, dying to, he's died to forgive us. We will talk to beings beyond ourselves in the future. It's written in the scriptures. We will have love without parting, and we will see the ultimate triumph of good over evil. So that's the points I want to make this afternoon. We've got opportunity in Judea to listen and watch people to try and work out who is sort of where there's an opening in someone's heart. And then we've got this opportunity of building on that the fact that there is this ultimate reality that every human being wants. And if we can work into that and work into that slowly or quickly, ultimately someone will come to see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and that God truly is a loving Father who's given us all of these good things. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Thanks for listening.